everybody. Welcome to It Never Rains on this podcast. I'm Hithliday. I'm the managing editor for Addicted to Quack. It's a website. Joining me this week is one of the great writers for ATQ, Adam Holland. How you doing, Adam? I'm doing well. Looks like um, Oregon has a lot of uh, things going on right now, uh, nonetheless of which is their basketball recruiting and then football etches ever closer. So should be a fun cast. Uh, yeah, football's e- always either on or uh, getting ready to be on. <laughs> we, we never really take a break in that sport. Um, uh, uh, you've been uh, all over the map. A- at least you're not as b- in a bad a situation as uh, uh, our colleague Badwater, who we we sent to the women's soccer opening game on Friday, only for that game to be canceled on COVID protocols, which is actually the second women's soccer game that we sent him to that has been either canceled or rearranged. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, even though we're talking about games uh, on in these sports, basketball and football that have yet to be played, um, you know, st- still better than showing up with your press pass and your camera and uh, no, no game at all. Um, not yeah, the that's least, rough. Not not least of which for it to be about soccer. So, but uh, we do have some men's basketball recruiting to talk about. You wrote an article about uh, Dana Altman landing a five star recruit Kwame Evans. Uh, you excited about it? I am. Um, I think that there's uh, still maybe a little polishing to do. Uh, for this kid as far as kind of like learning how to create his own shots a little more. But uh, the good thing about him, <clears throat> which I pointed out <clears throat> in my article, was that he has the skill set to go with the size that is in such high demand nowadays. Um, obviously, we've kind of you know evolved basketball-wise to a point where bigs are no longer just back to the basket, inside, layups, dunks, rebounds. Uh, the game is spread out a lot more. Bigs are expected to be able to shoot. They're expected to be able to handle. Uh, this this kid can do both, for sure. Um, after reviewing uh, some of the film from him, which I noted I was a little disappointed in because it was, it was limited. Uh, I really would have liked to have found more defensive highlights from him. I, I tend to be kind of a defensive kind of guy when it comes to sports. I like to watch the, yeah, the, the defense a little better. But uh, good luck finding high school film on the on the defense, you know, unless it's yeah, a really sexy yeah. block where the ball gets, you know, knocked out of the, the, the stadium that they are, you know, the highlight films just don't care about D. Yeah, it's unfortunate. So, like I said, it's, it, it's kind of a matter of I, I haven't really been able to see exactly what he can bring to the table defensively. But just given the fact of, of, of his length, and his mobility, he, he looks like he's able to guard anywhere from inside the paint out into the perimeter. Um, offensively, I think he, like I said, he has a little more polishing to do, but I like his, his, his set jump shooting. He's a good outside shooter for a big. Um, he's got a nice spot-up jump shot from mid-range all the way out to the three-point line. He's a lefty. Which- which that ain't easy to find. You're, you're yeah. first of all, not going to find there's not a ton of lefties in the league. It's interesting, sort of unlike baseball, where there's a premium on lefties. Like it almost feels like there's um, uh, like all of our offense is structured around righties. So, you know, I don't know about you, kid. Like, uh, yeah, like, you know, big shooting lefties. Yeah, they're few and far between. And the other thing is you're not kidding about his size. You know, he's listed as six, nine. A lot of times in college sports, you're sort of like, you take that with a grain of salt. That kid's pushing six, 10. Like he's, yeah, he's really six, nine, you know, he is all of six, nine and probably has some more growing to do still. 
Um, yeah, I, I do expect him to be every bit of 6'10 by the time he shoots suits up for Oregon, if not even maybe an inch more. Um, the uh, the other good thing to see about his, his body frame is that he's, he's still got a lanky upper body, but he looks to have a very thick, sturdy lower body. And that's all that's already good to see, because like I said, at that height, he'll probably end up in the paint from time to time and he can establish himself. I mean, better. I, I hope so. I want to see more of Oregon playing in the paint. I, I sort of think a lot of that's been missing. And it's like, you know, the other thing is, you know, it, he, he's a power forward, you know, like it's sort of you're absolutely right about the evolution of the game and that, you know, guys his size. um especially if they put on some more upper body mass, you would just, you know, slot him in as a center, you know, as you say, back to the basket kind of guy um, who, you know, sort of back down opponents and then, you know, a little floater. Uh, that's not really his game, or at least that's not the film that I see. You know, I, I see a guy who's like pretty fluid in, in open space, but comfortable taking contact. And is just, you know, this is of course going to be true of any six foot nine kid in high school, but like not afraid of contact, you know, not afraid of, you know, get going down low, which has been my, you know, biggest single complaint about, you know, the modern game, you know, as it's gone in the, I'm not trying to put this on Steph Curry, uh, please Steph or Alicia, if you're listening, you know, this isn't about you. Uh, but like in the, the modern Steph Curry game, you know, where everything's about the perimeter, uh, I really want to see guys on the, on the dribble drive. Like, you know, I want to see more Kevin Durant's and like, you know, I'm not saying Kwame Evans is the next Kevin Durant, but like his game reminds me of a young Kevin Durant. You know what I mean? Yeah. His, his game is, is, is similar. And um, the one thing I like about him a lot um, is that although he's, you know, effective in the half court in the open court, he really reminds me a lot of Giannis in the sense that, when when that guy gets a rebound and gets ahead of steam going down the court, he's down the court in just a few strides, and he's just too long. I know, and too fast for people to stop. I, on the break. I think we we probably watched the same clip where it's just like it's it's a it's like he takes three strides and he's about he's covered about three quarters of the court. Like it's just he he's so long and he has such a it sort of sounds like a cliche, I guess, but it's like such a spring in his step. You know, you just like, there's so much power off of each, you know, uh, uh, step that like he covers so much ground in so little time. It's crazy. Um, and yeah, like I, man, I want to see that, you know, that, that kid's got some fast break dunks in his future. Like, let me tell you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that was, that was the interesting thing too, about watching him is that, uh, I mean, from a from a standpoint of of focus and discipline, it's it's kind of nice to see that he he doesn't appear to be a big showboater with his fast break dunks. Uh, that's that's one thing I noticed that he was he was out on the break a lot of times, and I was like, oh, here comes a windmill or a three sixty. Now he's he seems to be very content with just you know kind of a simple up and two hand slam, and then just get back down the court. Yeah, but it was coming off a fast break that 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 electrifies the arena. That's that's enough. Um, uh, so yeah, you know, looking forward to that one. Uh, and then the other guy in the class, there's only two guys in the class right now, or at least two are, you know, hard commits is, uh, Jackson Shellstad, um, who committed a long time ago, uh, an Oregon kid, uh, uh, Kwame Evans from Florida. Um, uh, I'm not sure that I've, uh, I, I don't think you've weighed in on that, uh, on Shellstad for, for addicted to quack yet. What do you think about that guy? 
Yeah, I haven't had a chance to yet, but um, I'd like to. I'd like to do an article on them in the future. Uh, well, I'm sure like when the class that. rounds out, we can do like a full like rundown of the class. Yeah. Just like, um, it's only it's only two guys right now. Of course, only yeah. two guys, and they're the number seven ranked class. That's how highly rated these guys are. But yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, the, the local ca- Oregon's din- done okay with point guards from West Lynn. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, what do you see now, Shellstead? Uh, I really like Shellstad, and um, <clears throat> the one thing that I was a little concerned with <clears throat> um, when I, I, I did my article on Evans was that he had a little bit of trouble creating shots for himself and was more of a set shooter or a fast break guy. Sure, uh, Shellstad is brilliant at creating shots for himself. Um, he, I know, I don't want to just say Peyton Pritchard because of the West Lynn connection, but. <laughs> The way Peyton Pritchard, especially in his final year for Oregon, would create shots for himself off the dribble, Shellstad already looks to have that down to a key. Um, he's, he's, you know, very good at like opening up space for himself as a shooter. And then as a shooter, he's very efficient too. Um, but the thing I like about him is that at 6'1", which like I said, is, you know, about standard point guard size, you know, he's, he's not a Will Richardson or anything. But he doesn't look afraid to attack the basket at all. Um, in, in a lot of the uh, highlights I watched, he was actually attacking the basket more often than he was a, a spot-up shooter. You know, he can he can shake a guy off the dribble, but his mindset looked to be to get to the cup more than to, like, pull up for a jumper. And then, uh, you know, the other exciting thing in, in men's basketball recruiting has been the roller coaster of Mookie, Mookie Cook's um, announcement. Uh, he's the number four player in the country. He was at one point committed to Oregon. Um, back in, uh, I believe, June, uh, he decommitted from Oregon. Uh, he is uh, he's set to he's announced that he's going to commit um on friday uh we're recording this on thursday night so maybe this will be old news by the time that you're listening to this uh listener but uh you know there's a good deal of potential that or that he just you know re-ups with oregon um and you know he just took took a moment to to look around and and is gonna you know uh you know recommit you know there's a number of recruiting sites who seem to believe that oregon's back in the driver's seat for the guy and i mean you know uh, all the reasons that he would have committed to Oregon in the past all still obtain, right? You know, it's not like Oregon's had any dramatic changes in the coaching staff, you know, or, you know, it's not like there's been any like real landscape changes. So I don't know. I'm, I, you know, do, do you think I'm being crazy for just being optimistic and thinking, ah, oh, Mookie's back in the fold or what do you think? No, um, I, I think there's, there's reason for optimism. You, uh, you see this a lot uh, with, with recruits. Um, sometimes they're, they're really wowed by their initial visit, by their you know, initial impression, and they commit right away. And then maybe something happens. In this case, uh, you know, playing LeBron James in, in, mm. in, on TV maybe kind of made him think that, hey, I'm kind of a hot commodity. Maybe I shouldn't decide right now exactly where I'm going and kind of open this back up. And um, yeah, I, I don't think it's uncommon. Um, I think that if he already committed to Oregon once and then uh, when decommitting didn't say anything about like, you know, oh, I'm, I'm completely exploring other places because he left it wide open that like, oh yeah, maybe Oregon is the place we'll see. Um, but I think there's, there's just as good a chance as any that he still ends up with the Ducks. Um, I think that, coming in like that. Um, I think 
if I'm not mistaken, that he would be, yeah, he would he would round out that that 2023 class. That would make it um, two five stars and a four star uh, for the yeah, 2023 no, class. No, so you're, I mean, if you're looking at that, that's in the past that was almost like something unheard of for, for Oregon basketball and just, just yeah, I know. be in the mix for that for like the second straight year is amazing. And for it all to be prep recruits, you know, like Dana Altman's made, you know, quite a name for himself through, through transfers. In fact, you know, much of, you know, the last, you know, cycle was a bunch of transfers, but like, you know, uh, three, you know, blue chip prep recruits and not, you know, no overlaps in the position because Mookie Cook's a, a small forward, right? Uh, you know, like, and fits, you know, well with the current roster. I mean, it would be quite a, quite a coup. I mean, we shouldn't be counting these, you know, eggs before they hatch. Another thing to be said about, you know, Cook to be pretty cool is that like, I, I, he's, he's played his, uh, high school ball at, uh, Compass Prep in Chandler, uh, Arizona. Um, but he's a local kid too. He's, he's from Jefferson, Oregon. Um, and it, you know, it'd be pretty cool if like two thirds of the class, you know, their hometown was Oregon. Like I, 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 you know, like Oregon's a small state. It doesn't really produce a ton of talent. And I'm not really one of these, like, you know, chauvinists who, who wants, uh, oh, you know, Oregon for Oregonians, you know, or, or, or whatever. I just think it'd be cool, you know, like, uh, uh, the, you know, always great when the local could, you know, makes good, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think his his you know tie to the state of Oregon, along with Evans's commitment, is not going to hurt our chances. Uh, because if there's one thing five star recruits like to do, it's join up with other five star recruits on the same team. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. <laughs> and unless they really just are, are dead set on being a one man show instead of actually coming to a powerful team, uh, that plays heavily into it. And the fact that they are both forwards, but um, uh, Mookie tends to play more of like the small forward position, sure. whereas Evans is more of like a power forward. He's a little bigger. Uh, because yeah, right. Cook six is, nine Cook versus is, six seven. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, that I mean, that's a that's an unbelievable one two punch in the front court right there, and so yeah. that's something that I'm sure he can see as well. Well, and it's also, I mean, like if if you want to be a one man show, like forget about playing for Dana Altman. Like it's just not his. I'm I'm not trying to be like triumphalist about that. You know, I know how that sounds, but you know, there, there are plenty of national championship teams that are one man shows. I'm not like talking trash about one man shows, but like, that's just not how Dana, you know, that's not how, oh, I'm, no, teams, you know? absolutely like, not. And that's, that's why his, his record in the, you know, later February and March is so impeccable because mm-hmm. he, he puts emphasis so much on cohesion as a team. And that's why you see these, ragtag groups that he's gotten in the past full of you know random transfers and junior college you know that just make these ridiculous runs is because he creates that cohesion yeah uh all right let's take a break uh we come back we'll switch over and talk about the women's side of the basketball court Okay, Adam, uh, you also wrote an article about uh, some of the changes going on on the women's uh, basketball coaching side, uh, most notably uh, Mike Moser, um, who has an interesting history as a player uh, and then a coach, and uh, joining up with another former Duck uh, in Boston. Why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, uh, so looks looks like Moser's headed to um, a team uh, full of some uh, Portland ties. 
nonetheless of which are, you know, Peyton Pritchard himself from West Lynn and U of O and uh, Damon Stoudemire uh, from the Blazers in the Portland area who um, are a player and a coach on the staff. And uh, yeah, it looks like it's kind of like the, uh, the um, Eastern Oregon flock heading over there at this point. Um, while this is a, a, a great thing for Moser um, and it's, it's also a good look for Oregon women's basketball uh, because of, you know, the notoriety of someone being plucked, you know, right away from the staff. Um, it does kind of, you know, leave, it, it leaves a hole there for um, Oregon women's basketball. And obviously there was a reason why, you know, Moser was picked up so quickly. And um, so I think that he'll, I think that he'll do great. Um, you know, he, he has worked in the NBA before. He was with the Dallas Mavericks for almost five years um, he's got a great basketball mind. Um, I definitely think that you'll you'll see him do well in Boston. Uh, but at the same time, you know, back in Eugene, then like kind of like that, you know, leave some uh, holes in the coaching staff. Uh, he wasn't the only assistant to leave. And uh, unfortunately, on the, on the women's side, the only recruiting news that I, I've had as of late was that uh, the first commit of the 2023 recruiting class has uh, decommitted and flipped uh, to BYU. Yeah. Well, I I think her, her, one of her parents wound up as a coach at BYU is sort of like a, you know, no duh, you know, (laughs) like I I didn't, I like that. It it sucks, but I also don't really think it's much of a commentary about Oregon, you know? Yeah, no, I, I think that was more of just kind of like a personal, you know, decision and everything. Uh, the good thing is, you know, they, they've still retained the other two four-star recruits, uh, Sophia Bell and Sarah Rambus, in the recruiting class so far. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's still we're, we're still talking over another year away from when they actually uh, hit the hardwood. So I think it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a transitional time for Oregon women's basketball. Um, that was kind of one thing that I, you know, touched on in our last podcast is that fans might have to just – you know, get used to maybe being good, but not great for a little bit. Um, I definitely think that Graves uh, has shown what he can do and that he will continue to be able to get them up to that elite level again, particularly in women's college basketball. Um, it's a little little easier there just because of the fact that, like I said, there's, it's, there's kind of like less of a uh, power, you know, power uh, spread in women's college basketball. It's more kind of like you have these pillars of it and then kind of like everybody else. So getting yeah. up into that elite group is a little easier in the sense that there's not quite as many teams that keep coming up and being elite for a little bit and then going down and being elite again, then going down and being, yeah, and so forth. Yeah. It just seems to be, to me, to be the case that, you know, the, the amount of available elite women's college basketball talent is, you know, for whatever reason, I'm sure that, that some of it has to do with, with, you know, social, uh, uh, you know, social issues that we don't need to belabor on the podcast, but that like, uh, you know, fewer, 
fewer women who have the potential to be elite, you know, basketball players, I think wind up as actual women's basketball players. And as such, the pool of top level, you know, super athletes, uh, to recruit from, uh, is smaller. And so therefore, you know, like, even though you still have to come up with a top 25 ranking, uh, of, you know, basketball teams in both men's and women's that like, you know, the number 25 team versus the number one team in men's college basketball, that's still a competitive game, um, or it is much of the time. Uh, the number 25 team versus the number one team in women's basketball, forget it. You know, it, it's it, they might as well be playing a, a high school team. Like, there's a break at about, I don't know, the 10 spot. Where would you, you know what I'm talking about? Like, oh, absolutely. And like, it, where, it, it where would you put it? Like, top 10. Yeah, than the ten, like yeah, it might be maybe more like like every year. There's, there's yeah, four maybe four or five legit teams that actually have a shot. And then wherever it is that cliff is, you know, five or six, you know, five versus six or seven versus eight or nine versus ten, wherever it is that particular year, uh, it's it is a cliff, man. Like, and, and if you're on the wrong side of that cliff, like you, I mean. I just forget it. Like, you know, like the, it's just, you know, the, the, you know, every aspect of the athleticism in terms of like the crispness, the passes, the speed of, you know, down the court, the ability to arc your shot properly. Uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's night and day. Um, and some of those games, you know, it's just not fair, you know, watching them. You're just like, Oh my God, can this be over? Um, uh, just like mercy, you know, like softball has the mercy rule. And I sort of sometimes feel like basketball should too. Um, so anyway, like, you know, that's the thing uh, you know, Oregon under Kelly Graves, I think has a, a floor such that they're never going to be on the wrong side of that cliff. Like, you know, Oregon support for women's basketball is strong. Oregon has a strong coach in Kelly Graves. He knows how to pick good staff members, as you have written about in your most recent article. You know, people who move out and up, um, you know, like Mike Moser and like Audie Gilden, you know, it's a strong culture, too. You know, Mike Moser and Audie Gilden were Oregon basketball players. Um, You know, like I I have confidence that Oregon, you know, for the foreseeable future is never going to be on the wrong side of that cliff. But it's like how how close to that cliff do they get you know that's the question and it probably has to do with like recruiting and your hit rate on those recruits you know like famously you know kelly Gray's pulled in what was it like five five stars you know in one of these yeah, classes and there was one of the eight. best recruiting classes in history of ncaa basketball but uh, and, and, and only one of them kind of isn't a bust you know or at least isn't yeah, washed yeah. out from oregon you know and it's like that happens yeah. you know like I mean, it happened. I can tell you, at least from the football side, like, you know, law of averages, man, like it happens. Like it's not, it is not necessarily commentary on anything. It's just like, you know, oh, yeah. it, 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 you, you are rolling the dice with every single recruit in every single sport, no matter who it is, no matter what it is, yeah. you, you know, and the idea that like, oh, if you had, um, if, if that five-star prospect had enrolled at a different school with a different staff and a different culture, they would have not been a bus. Like, I mean, we don't have access to the, 
interdimensional portal. You know, we can't visit other multiverses in which those players selected Yukon or South Carolina or whatever. Uh, and, and, and we don't get to view how they would have developed, you know, in those other schools. But look, I am putting down a marker. No way. If you didn't work out at Oregon, you were just not going to work out. Like, I, I'm sorry. Like, I, I, I believe that that's the case, even though I, again, do not have access to the inner dimensional portal device uh do you agree with me uh on that stance or or do you think that that really no um some busts could have been saved from being bust by going to different programs what do you think adam no i'm i'm fairly in agreement with you um i think that the only thing that could have contributed to that uh you know and this is like i said this is still kind of more on the players and the coaching staff was just uh, how well known and historic uh, that team had been, you know, in 2020 that had been together for so long. Sure. And so I think that when that COVID took thing, a national championship away from us. Yeah, yeah. And so it's like when you when when you're comparing yourself to like something that incredible, it'll never measure up. And so I I, I feel like that mindset could have been something that contributed to it. Whereas I think if those all of all those recruits have been coming into an Oregon team that uh, let's say made like the second round of the NCAA tournament or something like that, you know what I mean? Like they weren't coming off some historic team that had beaten team USA that had like one of the greatest women's players of all time, et cetera, et cetera. Would those five-star recruits then have played up to a higher potential thinking like we're kind of like the big deal here instead of like, we're the ones following in the footsteps of these greats. Um, One one thing I like to uh, point out in that sense and how that works is that uh, when you, when you mention, um, you know, great, again, flipping to the football side, when you, when you mention great Oregon quarterbacks, um, a lot of people are not going to have the name Vernon Adams Jr. on their, on their, on their tongue. And the interesting thing is, is that it's it's I think it's pretty much strictly because he came after the greatest Oregon quarterback of all time. He came right sure. after him. He had some injury problems, but Vernon Adams was one of the more talented quarterbacks we've ever had. And you saw what he did at Eastern Washington, and then you saw what he did at UO. But he's not talked about in that same lure as like a Joey or, or a Justin, you know, Herbert or something like that, or even maybe even a Dennis Dixon. Strictly because I think part he came of it is that right after. You know. I think that's true, but I also think the fact that he was only here for one year and he missed some playing time of that year with the injury that you mentioned, um, I think that's part of it, too. Like, I think if he got a second year somehow, that he would have been up there. Like, he would have been mentioned in the same breath. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but I mean... No, and then maybe that was just the, the case for some of these five-star recruits is that they just... Uh, they didn't even stick around long enough uh, to find out whether they. Man, that's sort of true. Man, I, I do sort of yeah. wonder about that. Like, I, I know I, I just said that you know I don't have access to the interdimensional portal device, you know, and I, I can't check on the you know yeah. their their other iterations and other multiverses, like in uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. Um, uh, you know, and may, but maybe it is the case, you know, that some of these, you know, if they'd stuck it out, they would have had a better, you know, you know, they would have had a better future. Like I, you know, I'm not, you know, the, the, 
you know, I, it's just, it, it's pretty rare to see on the women's side transfers suddenly, you know, uh, 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 turning it around, going from like kind of busts to being great. You True. see, you see players who were sort of misused at their previous team. Um, I mean, hell, Oregon had one um, uh, from USC. Uh, gosh, I'm blanking on her name right now. Um, you know, oh, yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> I'm blanking on her name too. And I, I, that's sad that I am because I know but exactly like, who you're talking about. You know, you see players like that who are like, you yeah. could see the talent at their previous school, but just like the structure of their offense or whatever, um, or just they had a lousy coaching staff, which I sort of think was true of USC's women's coaching staff at that time. Um, like they're, they're sort of being underutilized and you're like, okay, if you transfer, I could see you having a great career. But if it's like, yeah. boy, you're kind of stinking up the court. Like, I don't, I don't, I can't think of any off the top of my head, you know, players who were like, went from stinking up the court to, oh no, you were secretly great this whole time. Like, I, oh, no. you know, True. Uh, um, and, and her name on the other hand, I can definitely remember a ton of players who were like, well, you stunk as a freshman, but then yeah. you stuck it out and developed into a pretty good senior. You know, I, I can name like six of those at Oregon in the last couple of years, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, her name just popped back into my head. It was uh, Minion. Um, Minion Moore. Thank you. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, and, which is a uh, great but, name. How could I have forgotten that name? Yeah. And the interesting thing about her is that she was actually very effective at USC, but just not as noticed because she was playing for a team that wasn't that great. Well, yeah. And you added her to the mix of Ruthie and Sabrina and all them, and it was all, all of a sudden like she was a great player on a great team. I'm glad you remember so, the name. Already. Yeah, that wasn't like a, a thing where she was at USC stinking it up, and then she came to UO and did like, great. She was actually very look good at, at USC, just look not at, recognized as much. Look at Aaron Bowley's numbers when she was an underclassman. You know, like, oh yeah, that's that's one person I was going to mention is that like you you see how much she developed into just like a leader and and a, and a great player for that team, and even like you know making it to the WNBA. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the WNBA uh, in women's basketball, uh, uh, Sabrina Inescu uh, set a record. Uh, she's the first women's uh, women uh, NBA player ever to record in a single season 500 points, 200 rebounds, and 200 assists. Uh, you know, quite an accomplishment. We always knew she she had it in her. Uh, I think there were some people who had their doubts because she was injured and it was like, oh, why isn't she playing? Well, I was like, she's got a bum wheel. What are you talking about? Uh, and now she's, you know, setting, you know, making history, you know, good for her. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. Um, she, like I said, uh, was not only one of the, the greatest players in Oregon history, obviously, you know, but she was, uh, I mean, at, le at least from a statistical standpoint, what she accomplished in her time was uh, one of the, the greatest NCAA women's players that at least I've ever seen. The thing that, I, you know, the, in terms of like, what are the implications for Oregon that, that, that Oregon had, you know, a tremendous college player and who has gone on to be a tremendous professional player in Sabrina Ionescu. Uh, there's a couple of things that make me th makes me think about. Number one is it was always striking the relationship that she had with Kelly Graves. Like it seemed like they just had a really great, you know, relationship. You could see him like joking around with each other. You know, you could see the sort of the mutual respect. Um, you know, that that was always, you know, 
it was always nice to see, I guess. And I think that that's relevant for coaches, you know, like I think that the, that ability to manage, like you're my friend, but you're also my student and we can joke around, but we can also be serious. And, you know, uh, like, you know, I think that's essential. And I think those relationships are sort of like the essence of coaching because like, there's one way to interpret Sabrina Ionescu being a phenomenal college and NBA player. And, and, you know, one way is that Kelly Graves made her that. And, and if there are some, you know, Oregon fans who I think might want to comfort themselves with that notion that like he took this unmolded lump of clay and made her the greatest women's basketball player ever. I don't really subscribe to that theory. I think it's more like she was always a great player. She was always that, you know, and, and that he had a great relationship with her and, um, and, and, you know, let that star shine. Um, and, and I think that that's that model of like, you need to get the great players and you need to arrange things so that their star shines. I think that's more like what, how basketball works. And if that's not how Oregon went in the more it's most recent season, which was somewhat disappointing. I, I, I really mostly think that's just like Oregon needs more stars. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, they do. I mean, there's, you know, there's no doubt about it. And I'm, I pointed that out in my last article, you know, saying that like uh, Papal was kind of like really the only like consistent star on the floor at this point. Um, and when you when you look back at, you know, competing for the, the national championship and, you know, being well on your way to one, you I mean, obviously you, you look at Sabrina and you're just like, oh, my God, you know, that's you know, she's the, the one on the floor. But then you forget that, you know, they also had like Satu Savali and Ruby Hebert and, you know, Aaron Boley. And it was, it was a, a loaded team. And yeah. so I think that maybe fans just have to be a little patient with that. Um, I, I, I don't see any reason why Kelly Graves couldn't assemble another team full of stars. Um, like you said, kind of particularly in the echelon of uh, women's college basketball, it's a little easier to, to kind of, uh, you know, get that group together and because the talent isn't as spread out as it is in men's. Yeah. It just feels like, you know, you, you just recruit enough, you know, high level athletes and, you know, you have the experience to know how to arrange things to, you know, get them to shine. And, you know, if that doesn't happen one year, so what is, is my reaction? I don't think it's a reflection on anything other than just like, well, we'll try again next time. And, you know, maybe this arrangement, you know, will like, I, I just think that that's much more what basketball is about. Sort of like there is native talent. There are exceptional players and that's that. And that all the coach is doing is maintaining good relationships with them, assembling them and arranging them. But the, the, the idea that like, Oh, I, you know, I, I took this, player who had no idea how to shoot a basketball and was like confused about this strange orange, you know, sphere that I put in front of them. And I turned them into a man, like, come on, man. That's just, I mean, that's just not how coaching works. Like, um, that's just not how the sport works at all. And like, you know, he just needs, uh, he just needs to, and appears to be doing so, uh, you know, recruit a lot of good you know folks roll all those dice and you know you're gonna come up boxcars like at, at some point like and fans just gonna be patient on that one uh you know that's my take um you disagree at all no i think it's true and i, I even finished off you know when in that most recent women's basketball article by saying that i still fully believe that graves w- will get us a national championship 
Um, I don't even think it's like, oh, he could maybe. I think he'll deliver one. I think it's only a matter of time. I mean, I, I think 2020 honest. he would have, you know, if COVID didn't happen. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm firmly believe that's the case. All right, let's take a break. Uh, we come back. We'll talk uh, uh, some more about uh, the Georgia Bulldogs, uh, Oregon's great uh, hope and fear. So uh, my most recent article was about uh, Dan Lanning's uh, um, national championship winning defense at uh, Georgia. They, they beat Florida. That was the game that I just watched in film study was Florida. So they're sort of on my mind. Um, uh, I have switched over and I'm reviewing the uh, offensive tape. It's going to be a little while before I, uh, I write up an article about it, but I am so chock full of Georgia Bulldogs offensive uh, uh, football that I, I, I need to get some of it out of my brain. So I figured this podcast would be a good opportunity to do some of that. Uh, you got any questions for me, Adam? <laughs> No, I'm, I'm I'm sure after after that uh, film study that you're you're just chomping at the bit. So have at it. <laughs> well, the thing that's I, I'm I'm not quite done. Like I, I said, I'm, I'm only through game nine. Actually, that's not true. I just watched Mizzou. Sorry, Mizzou. I, I I've forgotten about you already. Um, <laughs> they were a four and four team when Georgia played. Ouch. Um, the thing. This is sort of a, a nascent theory. Like I, I haven't gotten to you know the 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 later parts of the season when they play teams like Michigan and Alabama and then Alabama again. Um, but you know, so far, you know the 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 working theory that I I've got is that um, uh, teams uh, opposing defenses sort of. I, I think they were making a pretty big strategic miscalculation with Georgia. Um, I, I think that they. I think that they overestimated Georgia's rushing attack. Um, it, uh, Georgia had uh, several very good running backs, uh, um, uh, uh, Cook and White, uh, both of whom have left. Um, I, I think those guys were, you know, excellent backs for them. Um, and I'm not trying to take anything away from it at all, but like they were running into some, you know, uh, for four years of Mario Cristobal or every Oregon fan was, a little obnoxious, frankly, about the like, oh, they just want, you know, the running backs to run to the offensive linemen's butts and go anywhere, nowhere. And that, and that's a wasted play. And, you know, I'm sitting here with the numbers like, you know, these guys are breaking off 12 yard runs, you know, like two thirds of the time. Are you kidding? Like, this is the, one of the most successful rushing attacks that I've ever seen. Um, and, and then I turn on the Georgia tape and it's like, they're not doing that, man. They, they really are just running into the linemen's butts a whole lot. Um, like they're, they're running, uh, offense was not particularly effective. Um, and, and here's the funny thing. Um, you know, the really funny thing is that like, you know, what the really the most successful aspect of their, their rushing attack was, um, it, it was the zone read play where Stetson Bennett kept the ball and ran for it. Um, yeah. You know, the, the exactly, you know, everything, you know, what, what every Oregon fan was screaming for, like, why aren't you running Justin Herbert, right? Like, I, you know, I, I love Marcus Mariota and I love Dennis Dixon and, and, and you know, these, the, and Jeremiah Masoli, like, and, and so therefore I want Justin Herbert to be running. And I, and, and you know, they were like, we don't, we've gotten an Oregon's coaching staff. I, I guess I, like, I'm their defender. I, I don't really want to play that role. I'm just like relaying uh, what they said and, and I think was probably correct. Um, was that like, that's a very, 
very expensive racehorse that like we have no quarterback depth. And if he's injured, you know, the season, you know, goes kaput. And so therefore, you know, we're not giving him the green light to run that much. Um, And they they didn't until his, his final game at the Rose Bowl. Yeah. Right. Just kind of like unleashed him. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And, and, um, and actually a little bit too against, uh, against Utah in, in the, in the conference championship game in 2019 as well. But anyway, um, yeah, at the end of the season, um, and like, I understand the reasons that he did it. And I, you know, reasonable people can disagree about whether that was the correct decision, but like, I understood the logic of it at the very least. And it seems like Georgia, you know, has a pretty different logic, um, because they have like this weird, you know, like they have both Stetson Bennett and JT Daniels. And I think that made them much more free to be like, you know, we're kind of playing with house money here, you know, like Bennett's got the hot hand. And so we're giving him, you know, the start in all these games, but if something happens to him, we have a five-star quarterback that we can, you know, have throw the ball, you know, who in the 2020 season was one of the most effective quarterbacks, you know, from a statistical perspective, uh, that Georgia's had in quite some time. So like, like they were much more, you know, free. And, and the other thing was like, it was really bizarre watching SEC defenses try to defend the zone read play because it was like, this was stuff that PAC 12 teams had figured out in 2005. You know, it was just like, yeah. you need to stay wide on when the quarterback is on a read play because you don't structurally, you don't have anybody to account for him for if the unblock end doesn't stay wide, uh, you know, on the quarterback, you need to spin, you know, bring, you know, spin down a safety or bring over the inside linebacker, take it if the, the running back gets the ball, but like the, the unblocked end needs to stay wide on the quarterback. And like, this was not happening in the sec. It was crashed the back every time for the unblocked yeah. end. And and Stetson Bennett, you know, at least two or three times per game would be like, well, this is a totally the proper read. You know, I'll take this ball and I'll just run, you know. And, and the other thing is that kid didn't want to slide like at all. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he would definitely try to get, you know, a bunch of extra yardage and he would. And like you know, that kid's, uh, you know, I think he's got some underrated athleticism and I think he's definitely got a lot of moxie. You know, he, he's like eager to run that ball. Uh, will try to make cuts. will try to make you miss. Like, I, I don't think I've ever seen him slide. He'll go down face first. Um, you know, the, the yeah. Pete Rose. No, he he had a Tim Tebow mindset. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Do the running over or get run over. And, um, and, and so, like, th- that's the really interesting guy. I, I haven't finished the film review yet in the st- statistical compilation, but I have a very strong suspicion. And if I'm wrong about this, when I finish up, I will say so. But right now, I have a very strong suspicion that when I'm done with this and I, you know, take the, the I need to carefully qualify this. So listen carefully. I am going to, first of all, I'm going to exclude all the garbage time which there was a lot of for Georgia. They put a lot of teams in garbage time by halftime. I'm going to exclude all the garbage time. I am going to exclude as I, as I always do. I am also, as I always do going to exclude quarterback scrambles because those are passing plays, right? Those aren't run plays. Um, uh, and sacks, of course, although they gave up extraordinarily few sacks, Georgia's offensive line for all the problems they sort of had in, in, in run blocking, they're an extremely effective pass blocking offensive line. I'm really looking forward to how that matchup goes with, with Oregon, um, going forward that they're going to be missing a couple of pieces. It'll be interesting. Uh, stay tuned. I, I will write up that later, but anyway, uh, very good in 2021, very good pass blocking offensive line. Stetson Bennett usually had all the time in the world that he wanted, um, to throw, um, and, and 
so it took very few sacks. And so I don't need to make a whole lot of adjustments there um, because for some reason, NCAA official stats can considers a sack as a tackle for loss as a run play, which is just like, what are you kidding me? But anyway, um, like you can figure out it's a sack. So you must be able to figure out that that was a passing play. And so why are you counting as a running stat? Like I, anyway, one of the many adjustments that makes advanced stats superior to raw stats. Anyway, the, um, I'm going to take all that out. And then, so what I'll be left with are actual design running plays, but I'll be able to uh, separate those out between here's what the running backs were able to do, like the honest to God run plays uh, for the running backs. And, and also what Stetson Bennett was doing on either quarterback draws or, you know, uh, zone read keeps. Um, And I am willing to, I have a strong suspicion at this point that I'm going to find that Stetson Bennett was their most uh, effective running back um, from an efficiency and explosive standpoint. And that there are actual backs on actual run plays where the defense knew what it was doing and, and tried to stop the run. The defense was usually very effective at stopping George's run game. Um, and the thing was, you know, what I'm finding on film, and again, I'm not done with the season yet, but like the other thing that I, I'm, I'm finding on film is that like defenses are, are not just successful against stopping the run for Georgia, but they are way over committing resources to it. They are putting like eight man boxes to stop the run for Georgia and they're, they'd be winning if with a six man box, you know, like it's not it's not that they're winning because the safety is coming like, like the running back had broken through, but the safety comes down and stops it. I I mean, like the defensive tackle is beating the center. I mean, like, you know, the, or, or, you know, or the OLB is beating the right tackle. The right tackle got beat a lot. Um, and, and run blocking. It's, it's the, the biggest discrepancy so far in my, my tally sheet is between, uh, for the right tackle, the difference between his run blocking effectiveness and his pass blocking effectiveness. It is night and day anyway. Um, it, but that's only preliminary data. I'm not done yet. Um, but anyway, the, uh, uh, I, I really feel like this has been a big strategic error that opposing um, defensive coordinators have been making is that they like overcommit resources to stopping the run. And so there's, I can't tell you, I literally can't tell you, I, I don't have the number in front of me, but like if I, it's a high number, I can tell you that um, of how many times it's like failed first down run, successful second down pass. And especially failed first down run, successful second down pass when it's exactly the same play. They run the same play, but they run the pass off of it. You know, the uh, play action pass or an RPO off of it. And it's like the defense succeeds by overcommitting resources to the run or they, they didn't have to. They could have done it with a normal allocation, but they're like all they're very happy with themselves for putting an eight man box is stopping George's run game. Like Maybe they think that George still got Herschel Walker like his name has been in the news a lot. Maybe they think this is 1980 and it's Herschel Walker. Like, I don't know what it is, man. But anyway, uh, like they they. they and then on second down, they're like, well, we better overcommit resources to the run again. And then George is just like, okay, play action pass for 20 yards. You know, uh, it's just like, guys, you were, you were making Todd Munkin, the, the Georgia offensive coordinator, you were making his job way too easy by overcommitting resources to the run and not to the stopping the pass. The passes where those guys make their bread and butter. And the other thing is that like, I think that they do that because they watch the tape on Stetson Bennett and they're like, this guy doesn't have a ton of arm. Tech. He's kind of a Jake Browning, you know, he's, he's sort of like moxie and smarts and, and like he, you know, analyzes the play quickly. He like fills in where the blitz is, you know, like he's, he's got a high football IQ. He's got a, you know, good trigger. Um, but like, 
there's there's a whole lot of tape of him like missing on deep shots or like under throwing the ball um or like you know the receiver has the cor- the corner beat but then the corner has to like slow down and it gives the cornerback time to like catch up to him you know type of play that I'm talking about oh yeah, yeah. um i i think honestly it it kind of comes with the territory of how SEC ball is played. Yeah, um, honestly, you know, he just really has been played on the whole. He's, he's um, such a, you know, excluding some of Alabama's real slingers and like Joe Burrow, you know, I actually think of a bunch of counterexamples, but like those counterexamples aside, he has SEC quarterback written all over him, you know, like game manager with a modest arm talent, you know, yeah, that's totally that dude. And so anyway, I feel like a lot of coordinators watched that tape came to that conclusion and said, Stetson Bennett's not a deep threat. And so I don't need to commit much resources to the passing game, but I really need to stop this running game because this is Georgia. These are the Georgia Bulldogs. I got to stop their running game. And like, that's such a miscalculation uh, in my opinion, like, or at least that's my preliminary, you know, opinion. I may change my mind when I get to the end of this project, but like right now, that's my opinion is just like they're overcommitting against the, the run. What they really ought to be doing is dropping seven or eight on most plays. Um, You know, you should be capable of stopping, you know, the run with only uh, five, six guys in the box and, um, uh, you know, and having the linebackers play back, um, you know, as part of that. And, uh, and, and, you know, you got to jam up the tight ends at the line because they have really good pass catching tight ends. You know, their wide receivers are fine. They're like they're not Cal's wide receivers, but they're not USC's wide receivers either. They're like Washington's wide receivers for anybody who needs like PAC 12 level comparison. Um, they're, they're fine. Um, you know, and like you need to take Stetson Bennett seriously. That's, you know, my first piece of advice. He is a good runner. He is, you know, he can get the ball downfield. He will make the decision correctly. You know, he's not going to get fooled by, you know, defensive fireworks. He's not going to panic against the blitz and his offensive line is going to give him some pretty good protection. Um, like he, he's going to tear you up in the, the intermediate passing game. Um, and you need to commit resources to stop that. And it's like, I am through week 10, the Mizzou game. And like, and it's been 10 weeks of teams, not, you know, not being losing the plot, you know, on that particular question. Um, I, I haven't gotten to the Alabama game in which Alabama beats them, but I'm fairly confident when I do, I'm going to find that Alabama who plays a mint front, which I've been writing about, right? Like that, that term ought to sound familiar. If people have been reading my film study articles, they run the same defense that Georgia does. In fact, Alabama invented it. Um, or at least they invented the mint variation on the tight front tight fronts older than that. But anyway, the whole basic concept of the tight front is like stop the run with as few resources as possible and back it out. Cause the pass can hurt you more than the run. And I'm sort of like, Ooh, maybe the mint front, you know, really stopped up Georgia. Um, and you know, Boy, wouldn't it be nice if Oregon had a mint front defense? What do you think? Yeah, um, I'd honestly, I'd, I'd like to see uh, how Stetson responds uh, under pressure a little more. Um, I mean, I would like some film on that, frankly, because I haven't seen it in the yeah. first ten weeks. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was kind of you know like a, a, a Patrick Mahomes situation where the guy seemed invincible until, you know, Tampa Bay decided to dial up some pressure on the guy and all of a sudden things flipped. Um, so I'm not sure if pressure is that's in Oregon's game plan a little bit. I don't know, man. I'm actually, you know, kind of divided on that. Um, it was sort of like, like, 
Georgia's not run an air raid offense. Please, listener, do not confuse anything that I'm about to say with with indicating that Georgia runs an air raid. They do not. But for years, when Oregon was going to play Wazoo, when Mike Leach was coaching there, my advice was don't blitz. Don't blitz, don't blitz, don't blitz. Because if you don't get home like instantly, and I mean instantly, man, like that offense has answers for blitzes. Um, and that you're you were better off, you know, rushing three and dropping eight. In fact, I, you know, I was, I think on record saying you might even be better off rushing two and dropping nine. Um, well, I, well, I think- yeah, I mean, I agree with that sense when you're talking about a Mike Leach pack 12 offense. Uh, but yeah, and I'm, I'm not point, saying that because Georgia was more of like a pick you apart in the mid mid range. Yeah. Game, I guess you know? what I'm saying uh, is that like, I have a ton of film on Betson Stetson Bennett, um, immediately recognizing the blitz, recognizing the hole that it created and filling that hole with the appropriate pass. And if you aren't getting home instantly, that means that the blitz might hurt you more than it helps you. Um, like you're not going to ruffle that kid's feathers. Um, yeah, definitely. So I don't know if blitzing is a great strategy. On the other hand, maybe it's the case that like, you know, the, just the blitz strategy that other defenses have been throwing at Georgia's offensive line was were bad blitzing strategies, and that the Sims and and other things that Lanning has under his belt um, are more capable of getting home. In which case, you know, it's worth a shot. I'd like to see Oregon try it at least. But like, if it's not working, I would like to see them be like recognize that it's not working. Um, Absolutely, and I I don't think that the blitz is going to be the, the the solution to it. I, I'm just curious to see how he does if he is put under a little more pressure just considering because opposing defenses were so keyed in on george's run game i don't think he received yeah as as he otherwise might have yeah i I, you're you're using pressure in a more expansive way usually when i'm thinking of the word pressure i mean like either blitzing or like a really aggressive pass rushing and you're talking about pressure in terms of just like let's make the defense more difficult for you to figure out um, exactly. You know, exactly. Uh, yes, I, think, I, I, think I would definitely point, dropping into coverage is a way to do yeah. that. Dropping more men back and and just kind of forcing yeah, them to have. To I, I honestly, yeah, I mean, I, that's that's a big takeaway for at least where I'm at right now. Like I said, listener, if I change my mind, I will be very clear about the fact that I've changed my mind. But, um, but at this point, yeah, I, I I feel I strongly suspect that my conclusion when I write my article in uh, whatever you know. 17 days or whatever it is um uh that my conclusion will be you need to play uh you know within the structure of your defense you you shouldn't be pressing or, or doing anything particularly unusual but you do need to take the pass more seriously than you take the than 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 you take the run seriously um and and uh, because that's, you know, where the greater threat is and, and that's where the miscalculation has been in 2021. In fact, if I had a prediction to make about Georgia's 2022 season, I think that their offense will be less statistically impressive than it was in 2021, because I feel like once SEC coordinators get the opportunity to like really review Georgia's 2021 film, I feel like a lot of them are going to be slapping their foreheads and saying, I want to do over. I would have done things differently. Um, had I, realized <laughs> I can imagine, this. yeah, twenty twenty hindsight. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, I guess that's true for everybody, frankly. But like, I really feel like there, you know, I'm not just seeing 
like, ah, ah, shucks, they got us. Or, you know, that was 50, 50. And, you know, it just came up tails for us on that time. I really feel like I'm seeing, um, miscalculations by these defensive coordinators and, you know, you, you can't really overnight, you know, or, or in a one year, you know, change what your talent profile is. You can't really change, you know, your, your scheme very quickly. You know, there's a bunch of things that you can't change from one year to the next year, but you can make correct a strategic miscalculation. And I, I feel like I'm, we're going to see some, some teams, uh, strategically recalculate. And I feel like, um, Dan Lanning is, I'm not making a prediction here, uh, you know, but if there's anybody who's situated to realize that those were miscalculations and do something about it, it's the guy who went up against George's offense in every practice for the last several years. So um, we, 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 we have the right guy in that, in that sense, for sure. All right. Uh, uh, unless you've got anything else, I, th- I think that's going to do it for me. I, I-, I got to get back to the grindstone, do some more film review. And I still got BYU tape that I want to look at. We're going to be doing a BYU interview um, before the season starts too. So, you know, I'm just in like total film study mode. Uh, you got anything uh, more for me before we go? Not much. Um, like I said, I, I, I did like your point about dropping more men into coverage. Um and I think that uh, the, the talent and athleticism that we've received uh, recruiting wise in, um, you know, in, in, in recent years, I think is going to play heavily on that. Um, I know that we don't have like the deepest or most experienced, you know, backfield, uh, but it's, it's, it's loaded with talent. It's loaded with, with athletes. And uh, so if, if there's ever a time for them to, you know, step their game up, I think it'll be against Georgia and uh, and all those those uh, pass plays where uh, yeah. Stetson could just pick you apart. Yeah, it, I mean, uh, it it goes without saying. Uh, it should be a pretty fun game. Uh, I I will definitely be watching, and I feel like listener, you can do uh, uh, pretty well for yourself in terms of understanding what you're going to be seeing uh, when that game's played on September third by reading Addicted to Quack. We we do our homework. All right, that's going to do it for us this week. Uh, stay cool, everybody. Uh, we'll catch you on the flip side.